1: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes, thank you for listening. It's thanks to David Driscoll that we have knowledge of a 200-year legacy of African-American art. The artist, scholar, and curator died in April at age 88. Later this hour, Columbia University professor Robert O'Meally reflects on David Driscoll's impact, and executive director Rand Suffolk talks about the High Museum's Driscoll Prize in African American art. We'll also hear about a virtual pop-up early learning program, and the Atlanta Speech School's impassioned dedication to serve all children. First, when the pandemic hit and life as we knew it drastically changed, the Alliance Theatre remained connected with the community. Now, the Alliance has reimagined how we might gather and resume the joy of theater together. Susan V. Booth is the Artistic Director of the Alliance Theater. She joins me now along with Actor, Director, and Bold Alliance Artistic Director Fellow, Tinashe Kajisi-Bold, and welcome back to City Lights.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having us.
1: The Alliance is going to have a new season. It's 52nd, to be exact. What did it take to put this elaborate plan together?
3: (laughs) Uh, Optimism? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it is, in fact, an, an act of kind of unruly optimism to even conceive of a season of live assembly in this present moment. But I think we collectively reached a place where we couldn't conceive of not assembling. And so that was our starting place.
1: Actress-singer Terry Burrell is a treasure. What a great idea to start on an upbeat note with the
3: very Terry Christmas. It seems Or it could seem counterintuitive to open a season with something so directly, positively joyful when you think about the current American moment. But no matter the economic turmoil, the global turmoil, the civic justice reckoning, still we're human beings and still we need joy. And Terry Burrell is just a joy bomb. (laughs) You cannot spend five minutes, much less an hour, with Terry Burrell without feeling better about the world, yourself, and the future. And the decision to have that be our first return to live assembly just felt absolutely right. And and about that live assembly.
1: Not even a deadly virus can stop the Alliance <laughs> from presenting a Christmas carol. Please tell us how you will continue the tradition in the year of COVID-19.
3: Well, it's going to be a drive-in.
1: Of course. Charles Dickens really wanted it that way.
3: I think so. I, I'm I'm glad you see it that way as well. <laughs> you know, we talked about... How could we create a means of sharing that beloved story that absolutely acknowledged audience concerns regarding safety, artist concerns regarding safety? How could we responsibly do that? And half jokingly in a conversation once the notion came up, well, we could just put the actors in plexiglass cubes so that they they were socially distanced and safe from one another and from the audience. And all of a sudden, the notion of having actors in sound booths creating a live radio play that then would be broadcast live streamed to a big, oh, I don't know, drive-in movie screen, just sounded like a way to absolutely make the best of the oddest of situations. So that's what we're doing. I think it's fantastic. I also
1: think in some ways it harkens back a little bit to maybe Happy Ending. Was that the wonderful musical in February? Yes. With just the idea of a futuristic vision somehow that's achieved by something from the past.
3: I I love that. I also think it's an opportunity. We will be reaching out to the audience to participate in the telling of the story with their with their car horns and noise makers. <laughs> and there is something delicious about the idea of gathering your the people safely in your bubble, and getting in your car, and going and having this experience with several hundred other Atlantans equally safe in their bubbles, but sharing this communal story. Through the joy of radio, we
1: might add. Now, seriously, how will the upcoming season address our global reckoning with racial injustice and equality?
2: You know, I love that you posed it that way because The joy of the art right now has been renegotiated and we have to use this moment for for change. You know, we are in the business of wellness making. And by that, I mean that we bring people together and we ask them to go on a journey together that will hopefully move them forward. But we can't do that unless everyone feels safe to do that. And I think that there's a time for listening and there's a time for action. And what bridges those two things is dialogue, which will journey us into our shows in the wake of the new year, which are Data and Hands Up. And what for me is so powerful and exciting is that both of these stories, they agitate the complacency that exists around where we are going as a society and what we really need to be talking about. They're two very different plays, but what is magnetic is that they excite the imagination because they're both original and they have the urgency of now and they interrogate our moral compass. So data it, it really deals with this tear between idealism and company loyalty. And our lead, the lead character, Manish, is forced to come to terms With his own American identity as well as the personal and societal cost of that and his work and I see so many parallels about what's happening in the streets right now and what is American identity and who gets to tell that story and uh, Hands Up showcases the realities of Black American identity and experience from the perspective of so many different intersections of gender and sexual orientation and skin tone and socioeconomic background. But what these two plays offer us, and they do is that we are able to experience and be part of this generation of social justice advocates, right? We see that in artists and students, and critical thinkers that are just filled to the brim with their stories and their experiences that they want to tell. And as the Alliance theater, We can be and need to be that town square where they are heard. So on a day like today where we are so aware of Congressman John Lewis's um, legacy and we have to ask ourselves, how am I picking up that mantle? What is my work? What is my role? If you do not infuse your day-to-day work with that higher calling, then what is this all for? So I think that this is an exciting time to grow as a total humanity, and our work can be part of that journey.
1: Beautiful. Um, a great trip to New York, only a year ago, which feels like a century ago, we saw a marvelous play that was fantastic in every aspect of its production, and that play was Tony Stone. I am thrilled that Tony Stone will be performed at the Alliance with you directing Tanache. I'm, I'm curious to know how much you know about baseball and what you can tell us about the story as well.
2: Well, here's what I'm thrilled about is that you asked me how much I can tell you about the story and not how much I can tell you about baseball. (laughs) Um, I will say that I, (laughs) I know so much more about baseball now than I did a year ago. But what I know that the invitation inside of baseball is, I remember this quote that David Halbertson said that behind every great sports story is the story of a nation. So if you think about Billie Jean King and Muhammad Ali or Jackie Robinson and all these others, you follow their journey and you see how a nation grew, broke, came back together. And, you know, when it comes to baseball, Tony Stone throughout the play, she's all about the stats. If you remember that, like she's always talking about the stats of different players. And when history tells a story of baseball, people always want to know the stats the thing about the Negro Leagues is that stats were completely, they were incomplete. The the records are spotty, um, and that's one of the reasons why many Negro Leaguers aren't in the Hall of Fame, because the records have been lost, the stories have been lost. But what's so sensational about Toni Stone is that she always wanted to tell her story, and she was a great storyteller. I think that it was exciting about us doing the show, especially in the summer, is that there is musicality in it there is grandeur in it it is magnificently off-center and fun and there's choreography but it also addresses very serious issues of the intersection of multiple forms of oppression but it's told through the joy and perseverance of this trailblazer this hero uh, that you can't help but um, want to be her friend and want to want her to win
1: the first woman to play professional baseball, yeah, and it was in the Negro leagues. I think it's also timely that this story receives wider attention during the centennial year of women's right to vote and I applaud you for for doing that as well, Susan. I know how excited you are about hosting the world premiere of a new musical, Accidental Heroes. Now, the actual stars aligned with you for this show, with the likes of T-Bone Burnett and Marshall Brickman. How did this dream team come together?
3: Marshall Brickman and T-Bone Burnett are connected by a director named Des Makinoff, who is an absolutely storied artist in the American theater. He is the director, his his first foray on Broadway was the Who's Tommy? Most recently, Ain't Too Proud to Beg, Jersey Boys in between those two. And what Des does brilliantly is put the right people in the room to tell a story that is made so viable and visible and transparent and pushed into the audience's lap for their consumption. And when I heard that these three people were taking on the story of a completely constructed hero particularly in a year where we were committed to a production of Tony Stone, there's a thing that happens sometimes, which is two plays get to talk to each other. And I'm particularly glad that these two plays are going to follow in close sequence because the story of Roy Rogers and Dale Evans is the story of two completely constructed heroes. They were what America decided it needed at that particular moment, and Hollywood delivered. But they were real people. They were real people with flaws, with limitations, with wild ambitions, and they found one another. They created an enormous family, both a television family that were the most watched couple in America for quite some years, but they also created this amazing nuclear family of born and adopted and fostered children. And their story is deeply moving. And it is one of those stories that could only happen in America. But I really like the conversation between these two plays.
1: Susan Booth. Artistic Director of the Alliance Theatre. She was joined by Tinashe Kajaze Bolden, who is the Bold Women's Leadership Circle Alliance Artistic Director Fellow. You can find more information about the 2020-2021 Alliance Theatre season on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. As the school season begins, in our city, we can be especially proud of the Atlanta Speech School. It was among the nation's earliest educational centers for students with hearing loss, speech, language, and learning disabilities. In the school's 82 years, no student has ever been turned away for financial reasons. The Atlanta Speech School's pop-up early learning is a virtual preschool program open to everyone. Comer Yates is the executive director of the school, When we spoke via Zoom, he explained how the program got its start.
0: Well, we have three preschools at the Atlanta Speech School. Lois, our children who are deaf or hard of hearing, and our children with speech and language delays, and our our children who are typically developing auditorily. And as we um, went to virtual learning with those children, we were just in the first week, my colleagues, of whom I'm in awe, were getting extraordinary feedback from the parents around the experiences the children were having and the connections the teachers were able to make through the internet with their children. And at that point, as a school that opened as a free school and that's never turned away a child in 82 years because of financial circumstances, a school that's about social justice, I mean we, we couldn't imagine that that access to this learning could be limited to just the children who were part of our school. So that's what set us in motion. And we, we spent about 10 days with people working day and night to make sure this experience was available for all families. And why is it important for parents
1: to Enroll children in preschool. Some might think, "Oh, those early years are for play. Play is the work of children."
0: It it play is absolutely the work of, of children, and it really is a, a really early learning. And we call it pop up early learning because it's it's here, you know, now in the moment of the crisis. But it's really the recognition that, that the last trimester of pregnancy through age five is the most active and important part in a person's life for brain development. During this time, Harvard's established that a million synapses per second are formed in a child's brain during this time. And those, those synapses aren't, aren't gonna wait on this virus to be over. And the real question is what areas of the brain are going to be activated during this birth to five time that are really gonna determine whether a child can have a a future that they decide for themselves or one that's gonna be decided for them. So this is all about creating experiences in partnership with parents for that activation that's gonna let parents meet their dreams that their children will have the best possible lives for themselves.
1: And what types of programs and activities Does pop up early learning offer?
0: Well, I guess the way I I explained to somebody, it's like if you've driven to Orlando and and you've got children in your car and um, everybody's all excited, but you're exhausted when you get there and you get to the hotel to check in, and at the front counter, there's a kiosk with a, a hundred different pamphlets around things you can do with your children and you're overwhelmed, you're feeling powerless, you're feeling even more of a failure. Gosh, should I go zip line? Should I go, should we go see alligators? And parents are being barraged with this information. What we're saying at talk, you know, we're saying through pop-up early learning, there are three things that matter right now. Talk, read, and play with your child. And those things will activate those parts of the brain that are so critical for the best possible path and the start of life. So we're creating activities that fuel those connections with parents, with their children.
1: What are some of the challenges you've faced moving uh, the preschool programs to the virtual
0: classroom? I, I think, you know, it's, it's all about connection and relationship. It's about finding your way into a child's world. I mean, that's what all of this early education and early, early experiences are for children. Mr. Rogers said it well, and he's our guide for our entry into the virtual world where he said when he would look through a lens, he would think about establishing holy ground between him and a child or children on the other side of the lens. So that's what we trying to do is build relationships and then w- where it's a place where we can be in a place of mutual trust with parents and their children. And I think that's one of the, one of the biggest things Lois is that we have to restore the home as holy ground for our parents and our children. Too many homes have been disrupted by societal influences that are really breaking down those connections. When parents have to work two or three jobs earn a livable wage that connection with children becomes much more difficult when spanish-speaking parents are inundated with information about assimilating into the country and um, then resort to or feel pressured to use english with their children instead of, of their home language with their children. They lose all those rich family stories and, and those powerful relationships are, are lost. And for African-American families, societal forces that have cruelly demanded that parents focus on their children's compliance and regulation because the disproportionate dangers that have been inflicted on their children, particularly their boys, or perceived non compliance where loving words are, are restrictive words, not words that I wonder and and what do you think. You know, we're we're trying to work in the moment around giving parents back the authority that's been theirs all theirs all the time to be in those relationships as part of this work.
1: You have said that with this program, with Pop-Up Early Learning, you are focusing on low-income families or those families where parents have lost a job. How are you trying to reach them?
0: Well, it's, we would say that, that our work is with families who, uh, you know, with families for, whose children In that family, the families experience generational lack of access, or in the South, they're particularly denied access to educational opportunity, and our work is to to break that cycle for each child and and every child. So, gosh, through the James M. Cox Foundation and and others who have made this a free resource so that by anybody's phone or any kind of um, computer device can have this free access, um, that's what we're about. We're working with the city of Tulsa, where they'll have have these um, have these experiences on cable TV for families there. I mean, we're thrilled with the reach right now. We we have six thousand families enrolled from all fifty states and a total of nineteen countries. So that's one of the great things is how people realize we're children are in a class that that wouldn't happen otherwise, where their classmates are are literally from all over the world.
1: So the virtual classroom is not confined to Atlanta here with the Atlanta
0: speech school. No, but it seems like a darn good place to start when we've got a, one of, one of our great Atlantans said, we, you know, we, we came in different ships, but we're now all in the same boat. Um, that doesn't just apply to people in our country, but to people across the world. And, you know, and I guess the, One thing to say about what you just asked about universality is there is unequivocal science around what needs to happen for children in the first five years of life. And during the COVID-19 crisis, we keep hearing it's the science, follow the science. And the question keeps coming back, do we have the will to follow it? Well, that's the same thing for our children. And if you look at the COVID-19 crisis, it's impacting Disproportionately and brutal ways, our most vulnerable families. Our country and our country's illiteracy crisis is impacting the children of our most vulnerable families. Right now in Atlanta, it's not different than any other city. You know, seventy percent of our children who are on free and redu- who aren't eligible for free and reduced lunch because of their financial wealth are or, or reading on grade level in the Atlanta public schools, compared to only fifteen percent of our children receiving free and reduced lunch relative to race and ethnicity. It breaks out to 76% of our white children, uh, compared to 16% of our African-American children and 23% of our Hispanic children. Uh, Those are, those are just absolutely, again, unconscionable is the only word that comes to mind. And so, you know, we're, we're involved in this effort in the moment to meet the crisis, but all that we're doing follows the words of Ralph Smith who leads um, the national campaign for grade level reading it's who says that tragedy that illiteracy is a tragedy against which we must rebel and are we going to are we going to follow the science or are we are we not going to follow the science that's up to us
1: the program also teaches parents ways to set kids up for success In kindergarten and higher education, what ideas are you sharing with parents to help them enable their kids' success? You mentioned reading to them from
0: birth on. Yeah, and it's really, you know, reading to it with a child is really a conversation with a child of trying to have a conversation about what matters to that child. Reading a book with a child is basically that conversation with a cheat. The author is giving you a topic. Maybe it's about abandonment of, of by their mama while she goes out hunting at night or whatever it is. And we learn to have conversations with the author and with those characters. Why would she do that? Why would she leave those babies? And, then, you know, children learn that she's a predator and they learn that she's out at night because she's also a prey and that eagles and hawks hunt for her during the day. And so they develop these, these early paths toward what we call, and Dr., and Dr. Marianne Wolf, who talks about what will define a child's life is the construction of their deep reading brain um, Frederick Douglass said it 150 years ago. Once you learn to read, you'll be forever free. It's the same message. Well, that kind of reading that you're asking about um, is reading where we 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 pass over text in a book, as Marianne would say. You know, essentially, not to figure out who the authors are, or the characters are, or what they believe, or what they stand for, but they're a window rehearsal for us to figure out who we are and what we believe and what we stand for and who we stand with. And those kinds of conversations open ended questions rather than directions to be quiet or do this or that, not what they're required to do, but who they can be is the start of that trajectory through deep reading where I live a choice filled life and not only live a choice filled life, but a life where I can make the greatest difference in the lives of, Of others, And so early on, this is so much about empathy and perspective taken, I should add, and helping parents, coaching, helping children realize that that quality of empathy is defining for a child's life.
1: I love the way you invoked Frederick Douglass. I read that you have several pictures of Abraham Lincoln in your office, Comer, and he is sort of a touchstone for your idea of the importance of literacy. Would you tell us how?
0: Yeah, well isn't it crazy to think about arguably our two most literate citizens, Douglas who was a slave and Lincoln who was born to two illiterate parents in a wilderness of literacy acquired their ability to read, and by literate, it wasn't what they consumed again, but how their words could make such a, a powerful difference. And so many of Lincoln's words have, unfortunately, um, the words that he uttered on July Fourth, 1861, in his, his statement to Congress about the start of the war when everything was in disarray. He had to tell Congress what the war was all about. And he, he described the war as being about an, assuring an unfettered start for all and a fair chance in the race of life. And as we think about this crisis, COVID, we have failed to keep Lincoln's promise. Those statistics I shared with you show that all these years later, we haven't honored his words, but we all have the stewardship responsibility in becoming a more perfect union to try to finally meet those, and the science tells us exactly what we need to do to end this illiteracy crisis now, and how to, who we need to be with our children, how we need to see them, how we need to respect them in their first years of life. It's just, it's it's just staggering to think that we still tell children, young children to be quiet in school, instead of asking them to listen, when we're all about giving them a voice.
1: You have said that as educators, I'm quoting you, we must seek to win our children's trust in every moment. And ultimately, most importantly, we must seek to help them establish trust in themselves. How do your teachers
0: approach that goal? Yeah, probably the best example I can give is again. We have a school again that's all about children who are, who would have struggled to find their voice to be able to read, and absolutely our commitment is to you know is never to tell a child to be quiet, but to ask children to be listened to listen, and that's the science. I mean, David Dickinson says if you go into from Vanderbilt says if you go into a preschool and you hear teachers telling children to be quiet and. Uh, having children do le- worksheets, um, they need to leave. Well, I would say grab your child and run for their lives because that's what's at stake. But for example, let's take a, a good one about trusting themselves. The five-year-old, four-year-old children are in the hallway and they're getting ready to go to lunch and they have to pass some, some classrooms where older children are taking a test and there's a lot at stake for the test. You know, invariably in this country, we tell children to catch a bubble Um, which means blow air into their mouths and put a finger over them to make sure that they don't talk. And often we'll have them put a right hand over the right shoulder of the child in front of them, essentially chain gangs for young children, instead of asking the children questions and saying, boys and girls, I have got the lemma today. I've got a real problem. We've got to go to lunch. But these other kids are having to take an examination, a test, and they need to concentrate, they need to think hard, what can we do? And just about every four year old on the planet, uh, in his or her language is gonna say, we need to be quiet. And instead of children being marched down the hall on tiles that resemble the the ones that are used in prisons, instead children are tiptoeing down the hall and 30 seconds later, after they've passed rooms with children twice their size and reached their destination, they have learned the power of their own empathy and respect for other children, children who never knew they were there. Lives were influenced by the power of a decision those children made, not a teacher who says, I trust you so little to care enough about other children that I'll demand your silence and I'll shackle you. Air in your mouth and fingers over your, um, over your lips and arms attached to someone else. Comer Yates, congratulations
1: on the astonishing work of the Atlanta Speech School. My husband and I are ever grateful for the way your teachers transformed our son's life, and some of my happiest memories of parenthood are associated with the Atlanta speech school?
0: Well, I can tell you, I came there 22 years ago, Lois. And I saw the same thing. And children, in many cases, who were uh, on a path to struggle the rest of their lives, didn't believe in themselves, as you said, were discouraged, defeated, wounded. And with access to the science, those children are, are thriving now, as adults, and they're making the difference in other people's lives. But another part of my life has been spent with children who neurologically should have thrived for a lifetime but didn't have access to the same science. And again, educational equity now tells us exactly what to do. The last thing I'll say that I just should note, you know, reading is not a natural act. Lois Gutenberg's printing press, when he mass-produced print, you know, 680 years ago, requires us to have a new circuit in our brain. We don't have a single gene in our body to read, but now we know what to do to make sure every child, even before birth, hearing mom's voice in the womb is can be on that path. We, we have the capacity, we have the science to eradicate illiteracy. We have the chance to end children's choice-filled lives, not choice-filled lives, not being based on zip code, race, and ethnicity. It's just whether we have the will to end it.
1: Comer Yates is the executive director of the Atlanta Speech School. More information on the Atlanta Speech School pop-up early learning can be found on our website, wabe.org citylights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The artist David Driscoll passed away earlier this year at the age of 88. Driscoll was an important scholar and curator, as well as an influential artist. And he had close ties to Atlanta's High Museum. In 2005, the High established the David Driscoll Prize in African American Art, awarded annually to an artist or scholar. In April, I spoke about David Driscoll's legacy with Columbia University Professor Robert O'Meely, First, the executive director of the High Museum of Art, Rand Suffolk, explains the museum's connection with Driscoll.
4: Well, it was really something quite remarkable, I think, for the High Museum of Art. It started back in 1977. Uh, We hosted an exhibition that he had curated, Two Centuries of Black American Art. And then, over the course of the preceding decades, we were able to really kind of take advantage of uh, a great friendship. In 2005 was the first year that we inaugurated the Driscoll Prize in American Art. And um, we've really been able to, in many respects, I think, learn a great deal from him, but at the same time use his sort of involvement to do some really important work at the museum in terms of recognizing Great contributions to the field of not just African American art, but American art writ large.
1: What led the Hyde to establish the Driscoll Prize?
4: Uh, I think that, you know, candidly, I wasn't here then, but my sense was that um, they were sort of at the forefront of identifying both a need and an opportunity. I think it was a need from a standpoint that there was growing recognition that the contributions um, in both the fields of African-American art and African-American art history um, were not getting either the visibility or the credit that they deserved. And um, from an opportunity standpoint, I think it was a moment for the High Museum to step in and step up uh, to not only do the right thing, but also to begin to embrace the fact that, given where we are in the city of Atlanta and our history, that we were probably able to do this in a way that our peer institutions could not. And so from a reputational standpoint, I think it dovetailed uh, very nicely with the emerging values of our institution.
1: David Driscoll attended Howard University as an undergraduate where his mentor was the art historian James A. Porter. I read he once said to Driscoll, you have a good mind, So you can't just be a painter. You're going to have to help define the field and keep the tradition going. Can we presume that James Porter didn't consider all painters mindless and simply recognized that David Driscoll revealed an intellect for scholarly pursuit?
5: I think we can presume that. Porter himself was a painter who made his name as an historian. And my guess is that he felt that David ought to help build the field in in a way that an historian and teacher, writer might do, that there'd been important painters, and there continue to be, but we needed somebody to help define the field. I also think that being David Driscoll, he took the charge uh, and defined it in the broadest possible terms. You have a good mind. You, 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 you've you got things to do. You, you can't just do one thing. And so there he is. He became a, a curator, historian, teacher, a force within, within the field, as well as a painter.
1: Very much so. As you mentioned, Driscoll was a painter, a curator, and a scholar. How would you describe his influence in each of those roles?
5: Well, for me, as a scholar, and having done other things as well as a curator, for me, the the, the impact of the book Two Centuries of Black American Art is incalculable. And, And his legacy as somebody who presented a sort of manifesto to the academy writ large to make clear that this was a field, that it, it could be codified, that you could, you could articulate it across two centuries. It's one of the, reading that book, I remember when I discovered that book and it was one of those moments that, that one always remembers thinking, my goodness, two centuries of African-American art. So I, I would say that the impact of that book alone is incalculable when it comes to the canon building process we talk about undoing the canon and doing without it, but Skip Gates is right in saying that before you, if you're gonna tear the statue down, at least keep the base, cause we're gonna need, need something. We didn't have statue or base when it came to understanding that there was an African American tradition in the arts. And he helped put that together. As a teacher too, he's very well remembered as one who had this multiple set of talents And so not only would he teach you to draw and paint, he would teach you to make paint and to mix the pigments, I mean, and to go and get the clay that you were going to use as a sculptor. He had been very, very thoroughly trained. And so when you were learning how to be an artist, for him it meant doing some research, putting your hands on materials that you didn't only buy at at the art store. And so I've talked to students of his who remember him very well for that deep dive into what it meant to be a teacher in the studio. And then, of course, he's teaching art history as well. I talked to my friend Frank Stewart, the great photographer, about this yesterday to prepare for this interview, and he said that this was a fantastic teacher. He was a student at a small school in Tennessee, a mostly white school, and Frank would drive up to Fisk, where David taught, and listen to these lectures, and and for... For him, it was a revelation on that level too. And I think as a curator, he's continuing this work of helping to make clear that there's a road from 18th century African-American arts to the artists, people making clay and people working in iron and sometimes going overseas to, to learn to paint in, in the traditional sense of, of art making, right on up to Romar Bearden and beyond. Uh, so he's, he's done countless shows as a curator as an extension of that, that teaching work too. But it should be remembered that he never was without his studio. I knew him a bit and visited him twice at home. And we always went after a wonderful meal up to his studio where the works were on the easel that he was working on that day. And so he, he continued to, to work as, as somebody very much influenced by cubism and abstract expressionism Bearden was an influence. He, had other, he was a colorist who, who liked to play with numbers. He was part of the black arts movement in his own way. And I, I think the fact that he had all this other equipment for living made him a fantastic painter of, of unusual depth. He said he wanted his paintings to be not just forms, but sites of memory things that he would use to recall what happened to him and that would trigger intellectual responses and memories in his viewers, too.
1: Oh, wow. One of the paintings I know of his that I especially love is the Lady Jazz Singer. I think it dates from 1974. Yes. And it does have echoes of Picasso and breaking down into Cubist form but it is not derivative at all.
5: No, I think that's the, the great challenge in all the arts, isn't it, to, to be able to use what you know without merely copying what someone did before. And I, I think he's, he's proud to display these influences. You know, he, he goes from Howard to the uh, Scohegan School of Painting and Sculpture and s- studied uh, as a teacher too, all through the years. And, and I think he wants you to see that he, he has this history behind him, but then the, challenge, the, the hardest part is to become J- David Driscoll. And I think that he's done the magnificent thing of gathering all these influences and having a product of his own. That lady is part of his project, he says, of ennobling black women and making sh- clear that somebody who may be from very modest circumstances can nonetheless, nonetheless become a great performer can nonetheless become very eloquent and can become an artist and i think that the view of the ordinary person and the potential there is in his teaching and his writing but you see you see it in his art too hmm. he
1: curated a show in 1976 for the la county museum of art was that exhibition based upon the book you described earlier, or was the book the catalog after the exhibition?
5: The exhibition came first, and I know that's true because Frank Stewart, the photographer, told me that David hired him to attend the exhibition as it traveled and to take photographs for the book. And so, so it was. It was on the move, and he he was developing a specialty, Frank Stewart, in photographing art. And so, so the exhibition had its own travels and its own impact. But the book had legs. It's it's, it's you, you can order that today, and it has a, it says the exhibition without walls is right there.
1: Oh, two centuries of Black American art. Now, the first was to conserve a legacy, American art from historically black colleges and universities and narratives of African American art and identity, which I think was in conjunction with a literary friend of his.
5: Driscoll was very aware that African American art was hidden in plain sight, in the sense that you had to you could find it if you went to Talladega. You could find it at Frisk. You could find pieces at Howard and the project of gathering the pieces from those black schools and presenting them as part of a coherent legacy is very significant in itself. Uh, The the other thing that, that I know about his curating is that he had a Catholic view or a democratic view, not just one sort of art was to be taken seriously. And so when other people were saying, it must be abstract and not figurative. He would present both abstract and figurative and show that in a sense, both terms blend into one another. One can be the other. When, when the art world was saying, narration is not legitimate, he knew that the story of African-Americans had to be told and that some of the great painters, Jacob Lawrence and Romar Bearden did paintings in series and they were t- storytellers in paintings as he was. And so I'm quite sure that James Baldwin said the the, the question for our country is the question of identity. And so that for Driscoll too, as part of his larger mission, regardless of what the fashions were in the art world, he wanted to to make clear that this was a a coherent uh, identity with lots of different byroads and a coherent story with layers and fractures and and, and tributaries too, but it was one that we could tell in in exhibition form. Bob,
1: what do you think is the greatest aspect of Driscoll's legacy?
5: I think the greatest aspect of his legacy is that at a time when African-American studies was pressing to make clear that literature and history should be part of what every student has access to at Harvard or Yale or the University of Mexico or anywhere else. It's part of part of what people need to know something about. At a time when that victory began to be won in the middle 1970s and into the 80s, and music began to be part of Black studies, American studies, and again, of what everybody needs to know something about, like music, there was no art as part of it. Nobody knew who, Banister was or Duncanson and his great achievement is what I've called a manifesto his presentation of a of a of a set of sh- a, a traveling show and a, a a catalog that was a book that made clear that this was something important there's a there's there's a lot of beautiful material that we need to see there's a statement that isn't made anywhere else so beautifully or clearly as it is in African-Americans. So as, for me, as a cannon builder, he's at his greatest. And in that role, he's, he's also a teacher and historian. And the fact that he was an artist made him especially acute in this role as cannon builder.
1: Truly extraordinary man.
5: One thing that doesn't meet the eye about David Driscoll, he was not a, a stone man. He was a very, very lively, individual who was full of fun. I remember going to his 80th birthday party at the Driscoll Center and there were very uh, formal toasts presented by people at the college and people who had known him and by artists. And then it was David's turn to speak. He was 80 years old, so so you can Calculate the date.
1: Still teaching at the University of Maryland where the Triscoll Center is located.
5: Exactly right. He was he was still still on the job. And he got to the podium and then some music came on. He stepped in front of the podium and began to do a dance that looked like <laughs> the dances that James Brown used to do in front of the bandstand. Well, he was a contemporary, I
1: guess, or that was the
5: music of his youth. Well, the thing about, and then he stopped, and then he was back to being, the, the audience went crazy with joy, and then he was back to being David. But he went to, he said, you thought the old man was just finished, but I'm still kicking now. I love that. And the, the, the part about it that I later learned is that his father was an itinerant Baptist preacher and the only dance that he was allowed to do as a child would have been the holy dances in church when you feel the spirit and just can't, can't stand still. And that's what he was doing. He was expressing an ecstatic sense of joy with this spiritual thing in the background. And I, every time I think about him, I think about him and the, the formal David ready to give a lecture and then jumping down into a crouch and doing the James Brown church dance, like nobody's business.
1: Columbia University Professor Robert O'Meally and Rand Suffolk, executive director of the High Museum of Art, discussing the life and legacy of artist David Driscoll, who passed away in April at the age of 88. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. with Amber Nash and John Carr. They'll tell us about the 25th anniversary of Dad's Garage Comedy Improv Theater. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for
2: NPR.